Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome back. Uh, I wanted to talk with you today about something I came across last week that I thought was pretty disturbing and needed some exploration and digging into. It was a poll that said that millennials would uh, rather live in a socialist or communist and even a fascist nation than uh, in capitalism. I think it was 53% uh, would prefer those systems. Uh, this is a pretty stunning uh, uh, result here, and I want to dig into this about how we got to this point in America and with the road leading maybe from Marx through an obscure Italian Marxist theorist named Gramsci uh, to this notion of cultural hegemony, which is how you change people's minds and change the way people think about what is common sense and how that might have been changing over the last, uh, last 50, 60 years. Uh, with me to talk about it is uh, David Namo, who's executive director and CEO of the Christian Legal Society since 2012. David, welcome. Good to be here, Bill. And uh, Ralph, Ralph Binko, uh, who is the author of the Webster's Dictionary, one of the most important books written about the internet. Webster's Dictionary, How to Use the Web to Transform the World. And he's also founder of the Prosperity Caucus back in the, I believe it was in the 70s. And 85. 85, when it was founded. Well, but I'm not ancient, Bill, so. Well, neither am I. I was, yeah, we, we'll, we'll talk. <laughs> and, and the leading statistic there is that when he founded it, the Dow was at 850. And now we think the Dow is closing in on 30,000. So good work, Ralph, and thanks for the uh, prosperity. Uh, David, last year you wrote an interesting piece on, on an earlier version of the poll I just cited about socialism and how that's become a, a hip and popular thing for people to want to be. You want to want to brief me on or brief us on what uh, what you uh, what you learned? Yes. Yeah, so they they did a they did a survey last year and essentially, and of course I'm simplifying it. It said that 40% of the people identified themselves as preferring socialism to capitalism. Hmm. And, you know, after reading the poll, and obviously polls are complicated, that even 40% is a tectonic shift in who we are and how we see ourselves. And so to me, you know, um, I think it was a result of really the big popularity of Bernie Sanders, right? He, he took, he's always considered himself a socialist, but all of a sudden he became a democratic socialist to make himself, I think, a little bit more sexy to the to the, you know, the electoral class, right, as he was running for office. And, uh, you know, we all want to give college free to everybody, which is great. I, I would love to not have to pay for my kids' college, right? And, and health care for all and the finest health care systems, you know, all these grand ideas that I don't know who was going to pay for them. Uh, but um, the, to me, it was a shock. 40% of, 40 of those surveyed the, the prefer socialism over capitalism means that the universities uh, are finally doing their job, right? All this well, thinking. Well, what it says to me is they prefer free stuff. <laughs> yeah. Whether they really understand what they're, what they're saying when they like socialism, I don't know. I don't think people quite get the difference in the economic systems. Ralph, you want to weigh in? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I've known socialists. And let me tell you, Bernie Sanders is no socialist. 
<laughs> he's a hypocrite. He is a social democrat who has transposed, this is literally true, he believes that the government should be providing uh, a, a robust safety net. That's what a social democrat believes. Uh, a, a democratic socialist believes that the government should own the means of production. So uh, both um, Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Cortez are either hypocrites or ignorant when they call themselves socialists because neither one of them has come out and they asked for actual socialism, which is the government owning the means of production. They are social democrats. So there's a lot of confusion going around here, Bill. And one of the things you can do here is to help to clarify that and talk about what socialism really is. You've just finished rereading the Communist Manifesto, which is the uh, source of socialism. It's the fundamental communism is the sort of uh, 200 proof version of socialism. So you're well situated to help tell uh, your listeners and viewers what socialism really is. You mean I'm the one-eyed man on this call, <laughs> having recently read this. Well, in the first place, Marx was a wonderful writer. He's primarily a jur journalist, and uh, he, uh, but he had some interesting characteristics. He never really had a job as, in his entire life, and for somebody that wrote about reorder reordering the industrial world, he never stepped foot in a factory uh, once ever in his life. And for Workers of the World Unite, he didn't want to talk to you personally. <laughs> and all the research for this book and, uh, the, uh, and his other one, Das Kapital, uh, he did in the uh, British Museum or British Library, just, just looking up statistics. Uh, and he basically became, if you look at it critically, his statistics are there to make his case. He doesn't really go after the objective facts of, of economics. He instead says, this is the outcome I want, and let's find some facts to back it in. In fact, he found most of the, the bad stuff about capitalism from reports that were prepared by industry associations themselves to clean up bad actors in their industry. And they'd have people go around and look at a factory and they'd say, well, this bad thing's going on. And they'd file this report. Well, by the time he'd written about how terrible things were, the industry itself had already fixed the problem. And so the feature of, of what's called capitalism, I call it free enterprise, free market enterprise, um, is continually adapting to fix problems. And you exploit workers for too long, pretty soon you don't have any workers. So it, it, it doesn't hold up in, in, uh, in, uh, in my view as a, as a real economic tract. Um, although there's scary stuff in here and a lot of it's coming true. I mean, he was talking about abolition of private property and he also had 10, uh, 10, uh, he said, uh, advanced countries following the general applicable, absolute abolition of property and land. But here's what he got already. He wanted a heavily progressive income tax. And uh, I think that one's happened. And he also wanted uh, abolition of all right of inheritance. Although if you look at his own personal situation, he was supported through most of, I guess, the last 10 or 15 years of his life by his writing partner, Ingalls, who did have some money. And the other money he lived on were from inheritances. So, so uh, uh, inter interesting book. Uh, have you guys taken a look at this recently? Uh, sure. 
it's something I think everybody should read. Because well, I think it about... should be assigned in the schools because if, if you uh, compare the uh, 2016 National Democratic Party platform to the Communist Manifesto, you'll see that except for where the Communist Manifesto is obsolete due to technological changes, that the Democratic platform is a very vivid echo of the 10, uh, 10, 10 core principles of the Communist Manifesto. And I'm not saying that to red bait the Democrats, I'm just saying that you know they should embrace their roots. And if they are moving forward, since the progressives have more influence over the Democratic Party, and particularly over its platform, and since their, their policy formula appears to be almost indistinguishable from most of the Communist Manifesto, they should, they should come right out of the closet and they should declare that and they should say, yes, this is what we believe and we're not going to mince words here. Why don't we declare it? For, uh, here's my problem, Ralph. If they're moving that rapidly and that, you know, uh, on progressively, and I hate to use the word progress, right? Because it's not progress, it's going backwards. Um, but if they're, they're doing that, why are we not shining a light on it? Saying, look, they're, they're, well, we're headed to Venezuela. They want to go to Venezuela. Yeah, well, I object to that, David, because you are shining a light on it in your writings in the National Review. And I've been shining a light on it in my writings of the American Spectator and prior to that at Forbes.com and elsewhere. And Bill is, you know, committed in his human flourishing uh, ministry, if you will, secular ministry, but, but there, it's, a, it's a, a crusade uh, of shining light on it too. So don't, you know, go point fingers at somebody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. well, well, the, well the crusade, though, I mean, we, we need to make the case more effectively and we need to make it with more people because we know that markets are the most productive and fair way to allocate resources. And it's really the only one that's compatible with individual liberty. And we also know that you do need some light regulation, but most businesses, industries regulate themselves. And so therefore you don't want to be um, all over it if you want to see growth both in, in the economy for people as individuals. Uh, the liberals in America, I think they believe in the markets, but they don't trust them. And so that's why we ended up with this heavy regulation and, and all that. But we're you know, the, 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 you speak about pr progress versus looking back. One of the striking things about Marx, if you look at, the, um, look at his writings, is that he demonized the bourgeoisie as creating the, uh, this new industrial society, while at the same time gave them credit for the biggest leap in material prosperity ever at that time, from 1750 to 1850, or I think that's when he wrote the book. Uh, the economy for the first time in human history grew. And people were getting paid for, people were being lifted out of, uh, you know, out of uh, not just poverty, but starvation with the system that the, that the English primarily industrialists were uh, promoting. And, his, and then he's, his solution, though, this is, he, he gives credit to all that. And then he says how terrible it is because it's, it's uh, objectified workers and made them wage slaves. And his objective is sort of the good old days good old days of the uh, 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 medieval monks and the, uh, and the church and the, and the feudal society where people were very, uh, uh, very um, um, safe in their place in society, but they were absolutely uh, living, in, uh, living in terrible conditions. So he, he looks backwards. Well, now let's be fair. We're, we're, we're conservatives, so let's be fair. It's the progressives 
that like to take liberties. So I'm going to hold you to account here, Bill. He recognized that capitalism was, had destroyed the feudal order and created a bourgeois order, which he also believed to be, he believed to be an advance, but he believed that the, uh, he was very articulate about this, that the, the, the uh, tide of history would uh, now move where the proletariat or the working class, the blue collars, if you will, or what Hillary would have called the deplorables, would, would then seize control from the bourgeois. And so moving from the oligarchy of feudalism to the sort of soft oligarchy of capitalism, he believed in the egalitarianism of, of communism. In, and, and he uh, advocated the use of brutal means. Uh, and he was not kidding. And the communists certainly took him up on that between Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot in order to break the power of the bourgeoisie, which was his word for the middle class, and to move things forward to the socialist workers' paradise, which was their supposed objective, but which just receded further and further the more brutal they were and the more they attacked the middle class. And that's, to me, the dirty secret of, of the socialists, that, that when they talk about free uh, universal medical care for all, something, by the way, that state-sponsored, something, by the way, that Hayek was in favor of. Uh, they, they pretend like they can tax the rich people to pay for it, but they, what the truth is, and even the Washington Post has, has acknowledged this because they, are, uh, uh, they, they, they have integrity, that they will have to soak the, the, the plan for uh, uh, Bernie Care, Medicare for All, single-payer, single they would have to soak the middle class and essentially impoverish the entire middle class to pay for the uh, lavish be uh, medical benefits that Bernie is promising them. There aren't enough rich people around, even if you confiscated the entire fortune of the Cokes and of the Soroses and all of the super rich people in the country, it would co cover the cost of, of maintaining the, the uh, uh, Medicare for all for about a month out of the year. The rest of it's going to come out of our pockets. Well, And that's yeah. what millennials don't understand. They hear free stuff. <laughs> they don't understand that the, the, the joke is on them because it's not free. They are going to have to pay for it. Well, and the millennials who believe in socialism, I did a show a couple of weeks ago where um, I pointed out our, our Social Security, Medicare, and the other entitlement systems. We're about a little over 200 trillion in debt. If you take the value of what uh, of what we owe, we've promised in the future versus what the amount that people are expected to pay in. And you know, I'm a I'm a math type, and that that math's not very attractive. So they're they're piling into a system that they can never pay for the stuff they're they're taking for free. But let's back up to the Marx piece of this because he proclaimed all this great stuff. It only really worked in Russia in 1917. And it worked there because Lenin was the most ruthless man on the, in the planet, maybe ever. And he went into Russia and by force overthrew the czar. And what he really did was re he replaced one czarist system, one dictator system with another dictator system. 
there was no bourgeoisie to speak of in, in, uh, in, in Russia. So the whole notion of having the bourgeoisie overcome by the proletariat, well, there really wasn't a proletariat, there really wasn't bourgeoisie, it was just an outright grab power that Lenin did, and then he implemented this whole system by force. And, it, and of course, the communists at the time thought, well, this is great, Russia's, Russia's first and Germany's next and France and Italy and on and on and on. Well, it never happened, it didn't, didn't take. And the thing that's interesting about this, I don't know if I mentioned his name, this Italian Marxist theorist Gramsci, uh, which you guys have both cited and written about extensively, uh, took Marx and he said, well, look, you can't use the blunt instrument of force. You've got to understand that if you want our ideas to prevail, we need to have control of the cultural institutions and the way people think. David, Ralph, you want to take that one and run with it? Well, David, you wrote a very interesting piece as to how the American Bar Association attempted to uh, uh, attempted to hijack the power of the appointment and confirmation of uh, Supreme Court justices and maybe other justices using Gramscian theory, or uh, at least according to, you know, well, in direct accord to Gramscian theory. So why don't you... Well, somebody ought to describe Gramscian theory. David, you want to take a crack? Um, Gramsci really, really um, laid out hegemony or hegemony or however you want to pronounce it. Right, nobody, so, nobody knows how to pronounce it. Yeah. If you're, going to, if you're going to take over, right, if you're going to make a change, a cultural change, you have to, if one idea, ideology is going to, or worldview is going to dominate, it must stamp out right, um, the other things in that culture. And so uh, Gramsci really talked about how you change vocabulary, right, something we talked about at the beginning of the show, and how you take over cultural institutions. And that's what my point was in the American Bar piece was, you know, the American Bar Association, you would think if you're not a lawyer, and, and I don't think either one of you are lawyers, so you guys are, you know, your souls are intact. I um, am a lawyer. Ralph, Ralph, Ralph suffers. Okay. Well, that, that explains a lot, Ralph. I just want to go on the record for that. So, um, is the mail mail order university still open? I just, just <laughs> it was called Boston University and last the Boston University Law School. And last time I uh, I drove by, it seemed to still be there. Which one? Boston University Law. Oh, School. Boston, absolutely wonderful. Under, um, under John Silber. But the American Bar Association should be is one small example, right? Should represent all lawyers of all ilk. And back in the 90s, uh, really around the Clinton uh, years, and I went and found an old article about this, they started to shift politically. And they picked up on issues, you know, of course, things that I care about at the Christian Legal Society, right? They, they decided to take a position on abortion. And they decided to take a position on certain political issues. And they even started to take a position, you know, right in the middle of Bill Clinton's impeachment proceedings, they had him speak at the American Bar Association and people came out, uh, not, not conservatives, but liberals came out and said, look, the American Bar Association is going to stand for the rule of law, right? Why are you having this guy come and speak? So they shifted their ideology or people in the American Bar Association shifted their ideology. So they would, there are examples of, oh, they'd give, you know, a hundred percent rating for a judge. And then the judge would all of a sudden be appointed by a president they didn't like, and the rating would drop 30 or 40%. And that's what I mentioned in my 
my article is, well, what did they do differently, right? They're just as qualified. They're actually more qualified because they've been sitting on the bench. And so that was Gramsci's thing, right? We take over the we take over the affiliations, we take in over the institutions, we change the language, we shame people that don't use the right words, right? So we have to use certain pronouns now and we've got to, we have to address people in certain ways. And so we, through cultural forces, not necessarily, you know, political forces, you force people to think and act and, and be in a certain way. And eventually the culture moves out of fear. Uh, in a certain way of thinking. Ralph, you, you can speak even deeper about this. Well, you said something interesting. He says, when one ideology or worldview dominates, it suppresses or stamps out often cruelly any other way of explaining reality. So it's, it's not just politics. It's what people think of as common sense, how you explain day-to-day -day life. Ralph? Bill, we, it says, I'm getting a legend here that says less than a minute uh, left in this uh, in, in this Zoom session. So if we disappear immediately, I'm just gonna stand by and wait for uh, you to. Well, that's only for your camera. Oh, well, uh, it's, it's reset itself a couple times, Ralph. No, I, I'm joking. I've had that same thing. I had to reset it for, for a moment there. You saw me, the deer in the headlight. Well, I've had this big thing on my screen saying, your time is up. <laughs> well, uh, I think we're okay, we'll fix it. Like, we'll we'll like tune Mark. back in if we get interrupted the dustbin of history. Look, Gramsci made a point. And Gramsci, by the way, spent most of his life in jail, jailed by the fascists. And he, his work uh, filtered out through his prison notebooks and through his letters. But his main, you know, his main Welcome back. Uh, for those of you who didn't notice, the show got dropped. <laughs> I think it's because maybe we haven't been paying the rent. But it probably, we had a technical glitch and had to reconvene to, to, to reshoot the, or not reshoot, but to shoot the second, or, or talk about the second half of the show. And so we're, on, we're in new undisguised locations, or disguised locations. David's in, uh, in Colorado Springs right now and uh, joining us from there. And what we were talking about when we left off was we we're talking about Antonio Gramsci who was the Italian Marxist theorist who came up with the notion of cultural hegemony, which is uh, uh, really what I think we're talking about today when we look at the culture wars in the United States and who, whose ideas are controlling the great cultural institutions, uh, including international institutions like the Catholic Church. And Gramsci must have made quite an impression on the Italians because when they put him in jail in 1926, where he ended up dying in jail, he wrote all, all his material uh, from there. The, uh, the prosecutor said, and I quote, for 20 years, we must stop this brain from functioning. And so they locked him away. And unfortunately for them, they did not stop his brain from functioning. He wrote some 30,000 pages of, in a journal and published all sorts of things, which later became, I believe, and I think they Ralph and David it. believe. They were published posthumously. They were published, published posthumously. posthumously. His teeth, yeah. fight, teeth, teeth fell out. He, 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 you know, terrible life in jail, but he was incredibly prolific. Um, and I don't remember where we were exactly with Gramsci, but... Uh, what do you, what effect do you think that his writings and thinking have had on where we are today in the culture wars? And has, is there a transmission mechanism or did he just happen to write this and by osmosis people became believing it or was there an actual uh, 
effort to take his ideas into the strategy of the Marxist uh, movement. Ralph, I'll leave that one to you. Okay, well, let's start here. Um, his prison notebooks and his correspondence were published posthumously and discovered by the Marxists. Uh, whether it, this is a matter of, uh, and, and let me just summarize it in about two sentences so that people who are unfamiliar with Gramsci will um, get, get excited and get themselves familiar. And that is there is a cultural hegemony, which, is, which has been in the United States, classical liberal republicanism and free markets, in which the underlying assumptions of our conversation, our culture, our discourse, and our practices have all been certain things about, well, there are certain inalienable rights. We hold these truths. These are the self-evident truths of the Declaration of Independence, certain inalienable rights, unalienable rights, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and so forth. Uh, they, by challenging the inherent assumptions in the uh, culture and in the... Uh, in, in the uh, uh, civic organizations rather than the mega organizations like the government, Gramsci pointed out that you can revert, you can impose, you can um, overthrow the uh, incumbent cultural hegemony, which is the land America is a land of liberty, and replace it with a new cultural hegemony. Hegemony is a kind of fancy word, but it means the dominant order and the way people actually think about things and talk about things. And so I, the, what's key to me here is what we are in the midst of is not a culture war, it's a cultural revolution. And it's being done by Gramscian principles of, of attacking the uh, historic uh, uh, American dream and replacing it with a new cultural order by taking over things like the local school board, the local Red Cross, and as, as David pointed out very perceptively in a recent article in National Review, the American Bar Association. Gramsci said, we're not, we, we Marxists are not strong enough to take over the government, but we are strong enough to take over the civic organizations and without identifying ourselves explicitly as Marxists, we can project our ideas, the culture we aspire to, which is, in my view, a nihilistic totalitarian cultural hegemony through these respected local brands. American, people think the American Bar Association is a respected, responsible, fundamentally American organization, and it was. And now it's been taken over from within through what one of the Gramscians uh, named uh, Rudy, uh, I'd have to look it up, called the long march through the institutions. So the left has very shrewdly been systematically for the last 50 years or more, taking over the, the, the church vestries. And, you know, there's just, uh, uh, we're neglecting and essentially filling them in with their platform under their brand, which is a respected brand, whereas Marxism is a, an own, and socialism are an onerous brand because they've caused too much misery. And by undermining uh, free market uh, classical liberal republicanism, 
we now see the millennials all cheering for socialism, capital, uh, communism, and fascism. That didn't come out of nowhere. That was engineered by the left through Gramsci tactics. Yeah. And I haven't had a chance to read the piece yet, but Shelby Steele wrote this week in the Wall Street Journal about his view that the watershed moment for this was the civil rights movement in the 60s, where, and, and Shelby happens to be black, writes about this in, in a fairly authoritative way. He says there's a point in the 60s where a lot of Americans conceded that slavery was a, was a terrible thing and that as a consequence, the United States must be a, a, a terrible country with a terrible history and a history of exploitation, not only of slaves, but of the Indians and everything else. And that became the, uh, the trope or the, 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 the new thing. And, the, and America was no longer considered an exceptional nation, a great nation, but instead uh, a bad one. And we, I think we see this playing out today. There seems to be this divide between Americans who think we have flaws, but essentially we've got a great system based on constitutional limited government, free enterprise, all that, and see that as a good thing. And with 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 some with blemishes, and versus the other side, which sees us uh, as a as a real negative force in history. Can I open? Can I open it for David? David, can I just open a door for you here? Yeah. There, there is a there is a profound irony, Bill, because the uh, imperialists and the eugenicists of the, the founders of the progressive era uh, were the imperialists, the racists, and the eugenicists. And so by attacking uh, America based upon their, the principles advocated by progressives like Theodore Roosevelt, who were profoundly racists, as opposed to exalting the Republican Party, which was founded by Abraham Lincoln to abolish slavery, as it happens, first to preserve the Union, but then to abolish slavery, which is what, what he did, that is profoundly ironic. But the number one, at the bullseye of the progressive agenda, and this is why David is a very important figure in the culture today, is Christianity. The progressives are fundamentally atheistic, nihilistic, and totalitarian, and they have um, targeted Christianity specifically for marginalization. So, you know, if you say something hostile about Islam, then you become, you get pounded by the media as being anti-Islamic. Well, even, even worse, Ralph, if you, to say something positive about Christianity, um, <clears throat> you get pounded. Uh, you, you guys don't watch this stuff, but there was a battered women's shelter in Anchorage, Alaska, and uh, a gentleman showed up who identified as a woman to try to get in, and they rejected him based on their Christian beliefs and the fact that he was actually intoxicated, and they also felt that a biological man at a women's shelter was not acceptable. So. They, you know, the guy complained, uh, and the women's shelter retained a lawyer, a, a law firm. And on the television, the lawyer said, look, they had a, law, a lot of reasons to reject this person, but um, 
either way, and it didn't even get to this, this is a religiously run women's shelter. And they believe in, and he went through kind of some Orthodox Christian beliefs. And the Anchorage Civil Rights Commission or whatever it's called up there has filed a, a cause against the law firm for saying something for representing their client and, and representing and, and reiterating what the client believes. It's, I'm sure it's gonna get thrown out, but you don't even have to say anything um, against somebody else. You just can say something pro-Christian. And, uh, and it's just, to go back to what you said, this started, uh, we, we call it nice, right? George, I hate to quote George Carlin, um, but George Carlin said, political correctness is fascism with manners. And I think, <laughs> you know, and I think he had a lot to, he, he had some insight there. And so th what started in the 60s and now we need to say things that don't offend people and we need to do things that don't offend. We flipped from a country that fights for the rights of the speaker to the rights of the hearer. And that's a dangerous thing. That's a move away from our founding principles. And, um, and I think, you know, now there are laws that say you can't use the wrong pronouns and you can't say this. And, you know, that was my swing at the American Bar Association. They're trying to pass rules that say conduct outside the, <laughs> conduct outside the practice of law can get you to lose your bar license uh, if we don't like it. So uh, we think it's, and there are non-Christians that are, that are worried about this sort of thing. They, they, they I'm one of them. Yeah, I'm a non-Christian. I know you are, Ralph. They can't figure out, and I, and and uh, they can't figure out why people don't support the First Amendment anymore. At most, I hate to say it, a lot of people are inarticulate of the First Amendment, uh, certainly free speech and religious liberty, but uh, people don't seem to support it anymore. And and I'll end on this this idea: if America stops being Right, if we abandon the principles of our founders, well, like you said, if our culture decides that we're going to go in a different way in our organizations, I don't know who holds the banner for, for, for religious freedom for the world or freedom of speech for the world. I just, America is not a perfect country, but the, to me, we're the greatest country uh, in the history of the world, and our principles are worth fighting for. And if we decide to melt this whole thing down, I don't know who holds the standard for the world. Well, how does this line up? You're out there on the front lines every day, and I, I'm not, Ralph's not. I'm very interested in your view because you've got to deal with people. When you say people don't believe this anymore, they believe that, how, what are the percentages? How much of America has, has, has adopted the Gramscian um, view of the world or the Marxist view of the world through the lens of political correctness and everything else? You know, I don't, I don't have percentages. Maybe you do. Uh, what I do is I watch the acceptance. So I don't know the percentages. I, I'm assuming people that are older and more knowledgeable, you know, understand things better. But when you see interviews with young folks and college students and, and even my own kids, right, they struggle. You can't say something that's offensive. You can't, you know, they're, they've been raised in a politically correct culture and they're afraid to think or say outside the box. Ralph, you might have the numbers. I don't have the numbers, but I do have another George that I want to drag into this conversation. However, briefly, beyond George Carlin, there's a guy who is uh, insufficiently read named George Orwell. And in 1984, he basically wrote the, wrote the expose of totalitarianism. And this is what, what, you're, what you're describing, David, is a perfect example of what Orwell called a thought crime. 
and was called Newspeak. And we have this, we have this horrifying world where we were watched all the time and we were punished for commission of thought crimes. We were, we had Newspeak, which is what Orwell anticipated uh, political correctness was, where you're not allowed to say certain things. And there was a reason for that. You were not allowed to say certain things because you were not allowed to think certain things. And so the apotheosis of the, of the progressive order of nihilistic totalitarian radical egalitarianism. It, this is a, a, a strange form of equality where they are not just abolishing uh, uh, injustices, that's what they claim they're doing, but they're abolishing all differences. So for instance, gender. The Bible says male and female created them. So by the biblical world order, by the biblical culture, there are two genders, male and female. That's part of our creed. I'm a Jew, you're a Christian, which is just another kind of, another flavor of Jew from my perspective, but that's a subject for another, for, for another conversation. You, we read, your, we read your Old Testament. You worship, we don't call it the Old Testament. That's an insult. It implies there's a New Testament, which we reject. <laughs> you worship our God and you exalt our ethics, the Ten Commandments. So, and we're big fans of one of your carpenters. Yes, exactly. Right. Uh, so the, the point here being that they want, uh, the, 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 the progressives say inequality is a bad thing. They don't say, well, some people earned their inequality. Some people got rich through legitimate methods. And that's okay. They had equal opportunity. That doesn't imply unequal results based upon talent, hard work, luck, whatever it happens to be, is just part of the game. But they think inequality is bad. They think that, you know, the Supreme Court, and David, I may be a retired lawyer, but you're an active lawyer, and you are actually on the barricades. You, you, are, you are fighting against religious bigotry. You are fighting against the persecution of Christians. It's what I consider, you're doing something I consider to be lonely and noble, and not enough people know about it, and not enough people support it, but it is af absolutely at the heart of, the, of protecting religious liberty, particularly protecting Christians from persecution, is at the very heart of the cultural revolution, and you are on the firing line, and I, I respect you for that. And I wish more people knew about, I'm sorry, what, do you, what is the name of the organization that you're the president of? Christian Legal Society. Christian Legal Society, which is out there fighting in the courts and in the courts of public opinion. Remember, when, we, when, when JFK issued the first executive order against discrimination, one of the provisions that he, that he prohibited the federal government from discriminating on the basis of is, yes, it was race, color, national origin, and creed. Creed is your religious doctrine. The anti-discrimination ethic in America was originally at birth from John F. Kennedy himself prohibited uh, discriminating against Christians, discriminated against discriminating against people for their creed. And you look up creed in the dictionary, and the first definition is your religious belief system. Okay, that doesn't get mentioned anymore. It becomes, it's become a civic virtue to persecute Christians. 
and it's become and you know you are and it's it, it it's kind of like in, in space nobody can hear you scream you're out there fighting this this is the very first provision in the first amendment no law against the free exercise of religion you're out there fighting for it and there's not enough people are contributing to it or supporting you and i will tell you ralph you know we've been doing it since 1975 even when bill walton was young and um <laughs> And we have been fighting not just for Christians, but for all religions, uh, because we understand if you dig a hole, right, you fall into it. But if you build a net, you fall into it. In the 70s and 80s, when we were fighting for all religions, right, true religious freedom, um, we would get flack from the Christians to say, hey, you should just fight for Christians. And we said, no, eventually the day will come when they're going to turn their guns on us. And so the same principles that protect other religions, right, like the, the people that smoke peyote, for those of you that know you your uh, your legislator or your litigation yeah, the native american church americans exactly they, 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 just as speaking as an old hippie you don't smoke peyote you eat peyote you okay all right. my and my fault i'm not a i'm not an old hippie so, yeah, i'm also uh, glad this can be an instructional show ralph <laughs> yeah. leave it to ralph the methods uh, for you know but the same principles that protect them protect us today well, and, uh, well you're bringing up a, you're bringing up and we're we're running out of time of, of our interesting show part two uh you know 1984 ralph it seems like there's been a systematic process of deconstructing and destroying the intermediate intermediate the mediating institutions in, in society by that no, I mean, they're occupying them not destroying them they're occupying them and they're and they're and they're weaponizing them exactly that's better they're occupying yeah continue yeah well so th so there's that issue but also to the extent they do destroy them, they're really, you take a look at marriage, the goal seems to be the individual, the atomized individual, no family, no extended family, no community. The individual in the state, is what, which is what they ended up with in 1984, where nobody had friends or family or support network or civil society institutions, so you had no defenses. Now, being a person of action, uh, Ralph, you're defining a cultural revolution which i think is a great great way to put it is there a way to create a counterculture revolution because i think the first step to understanding the problem and i don't think people understand the problem in the way we're talking about today is is, is making people aware of what uh, of what has happened and then becoming conscious and then realizing that we need to take steps to fight back do you have any recommended line of action let, let me get jump in before ralph and i want to tee you up ralph so in my case, right, the American Bar Association, when they decided to become, to support abortion, <clears throat> um, a lot of Christians left the American Bar Association and said, I don't need this anymore. And they abandoned it. And so they left it in the hands of those that Ralph was talking about, right, that have now taken it over and have weaponized it. And I think what we need to do is stay engaged, certainly as lawyers mm -hmm. uh, with the American Bar Association, the state bar associations, right? So when a governor wants to appoint Supreme Court justices of their state, they go to the state bar. Well, if there's no people of faith at the state bar, the list that they're going to give the governor is going to be progressive all the way through. So I think we need to stay engaged if we want to keep our voice in this culture. Sorry, Ralph, for interrupting. No, no, not at all. That was an excellent point, David. I just I, look. I, I, I conscientiously. I just have to correct you, Bill, slightly. 
on a, on a, on a, on a, on a, on a somewhat false assumption. Ralph, you've been correcting me for years. So this is just the longest, long, long, latest in the long line of corrections. One of my dearest and oldest friends, John Roush, invented gay marriage. He, Andrew Sullivan, and one other guy. And I just want you to know that John invented gay marriage. He wrote the book, Gay Marriage, before it was a thing. And he went around the country promoting the concept. He did it in order to extend the social, to socialize gays from the hedonistic lifestyle from which he felt they were imprisoned and, and bourgeoisify them. And he got a lot of static from the queer theorists. I went to his 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 uh, his uh, wedding reception. I'm I I have explained to John that uh, I'm opposed to gay marriage on policy because it blurs certain distinctions. They need their own institution that is respectful but not uh, confusing. I suggested that they call it inamorata as opposed to marriage. Uh, he rejected that because he is a good Gramscian and was using his position as a award-winning journalist and as a thinker to, um, to redefine marriage, and he did. I think there's likely to be um, unintended consequences to that, but I just wanted to put in a kind word for John, the, the, the co-inventor of gay marriage, that it was not his intention to undermine the civic institutions, but rather to socialize a, a rather feral culture, which it's had some some positive impact there, but I also feel that it, it subtly undermines the the definition of marriage in ways that are going to produce some unintended consequences and are already doing so. So, so I just wanted to make that clarification. David, last point. Um, I think if we care about this culture and we believe in an America that stands for something great with all of its warts, uh, we need to stay engaged. And we need to keep uh, not just speaking about it, but be active in what we what we do and what we believe. And um, and we cannot abandon the the institutions. We cannot abandon the, the cultural language, and uh, we cannot abandon certainly the courts uh, and the professions to uh, to fascists. So agree. And the Ralph, you want the last word? Well, I just want to say. The, the, the left is outspending us by orders of magnitude on advancing their cultural revolution. And if we are going to actually prevail in the cultural counter-revolution, which we can do, we need more people writing more checks to the David Namo organizations of this world and get to get serious with our resources and to back them with our, uh, with our energy, but also with our financial support because uh, we can be outspent 10 to one and still win, but I don't believe we can be outspent 100 to one and still win. And we certainly cannot take the so-called Benedict option, which is to say to opt out, as opposed to doing exactly what David's saying, and that is to fully and passionately engage on behalf of all that we hold dear and sacred. Thank you, Ralph. This is great. Ralph, thank you. David, thank you. Uh, Hope, I think we all learned a lot in this this show, and uh, I think we've defined the problem, which is a which is a cultural revolution. We need to be part of the countercultural revolution, and we've talked about some of the steps to do that. And uh, hope you'll join me for the next show, and uh, where we'll talk about this and other things. Uh, uh, so thanks a lot, and we'll talk soon. Thanks. Bye.
Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites, and Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.